You're entering the GOAT Zoom Room. Welcome to another edition of the GOAT Zoom Room. I'm Caitlin Free, and as always, I'm joined by Andy Villanueva. And this week, we have a very special guest, Oakland announcer Vic Stoffer. Guys, we are closing in on the Oaks and the Derby, and time is running out to find horses and to get everybody situated in the gate. How are you guys? I'm terrific. Thank you. I'm good. Um... I'm glad Superstock won. So. Me too. <laughs> um, Me too. That, that was like a typical, that was a typical Steve Asmussen training into a race work pattern I've ever seen in my entire life. That screamed bet. Yeah, you know, I was I was saying in the analysis of that race that uh, when he's looking at his two-year-olds halfway through their two-year-old year, what he's thinking about is what's going to happen on Arkansas or Kentucky Derby Day. It is all pointed towards getting a maximum performance from whoever he thinks his best prospects are. And so going into that race, I only knew one thing. I knew that Superstock would run better than the time he had before in the Rebel. That's all I knew. Um, but at 12 to 1, that's actually enough when you're getting the rail, you're getting weight, you're getting a possible speed duel, and you're getting Santana. So... Yeah, um, it, it it seemed extremely logical. It, it, it amazes me that that racetrack is so conducive to having horses that are so fit closer to the end of the meet than the beginning of the meet, where you see prices like that on horses that normally would be favorites at the earlier beginning of the meet. I'm not sure I understand what you mean by that. So the one thing I've noticed about Oaklawn is that nine out of 10 times horses that figure in races have a tendency to need a race or two over the track to get used to it. And so the ones that you figure on don't, don't usually fire first out right away and you see big prices. That's what I guess I'm trying to get at. And I could be confusing everybody right now, which is a possibility as well. I don't know about everybody, but you confused me because <laughs> horses, we did have winners the first three weeks or a month of the meet. No, 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 no. I, I mean, they I, did run the races and there were winners. How can I put it? For me, when I, when I look at Oaklawn, the most logical winners at the beginning of the meet seemed to never hit for me. And I'm wondering if it's just a byproduct of fitness or the way the race is set up there because it's such a different racetrack. Well, with all due respect, it might be that the most logical winner in your mind wasn't actually the most logical winner and you just didn't get it right. And you are correct in that. I do have a, I, I do have a bad track record at the beginning of Oakland. That is for sure. The thing about Oakland is that is so fabulous is, is that you can hear the frustration in your voice here. But, but that, welcome to the club. We're all frustrated by it. <laughs> However, the, the, that very frustration is also the reason why it's the best place to play because 
yes, you can be made to look or even have a smart ass announcer tell you that you didn't do good enough. You can, you can be made to look bad, but you only have to look good once um, because of the prices that these horses pay. So it's, it's a very humbling place to handicap. I can tell you this from, from personal experience, but at least when you are right, and at least when that puzzle does get solved and those numbers come together, it makes up for all the other times that you didn't know what the heck was going to happen. And that's all anybody can ask. And I think that's where I was getting at. And yeah, I do get frustrated at, at Oakland more than I get frustrated anywhere else because uh, I love the track one. I think the track is a must see for anybody who's a track who wants to visit tracks. Um, I think the way the city embraces it is incredible. And I think the weights, I think everybody that just works there is so incredible and they're so happy that the fans are back in and they go above and beyond everything. And I just want, I just want to be able to say I'm always a winning horse player there. And I can't say that. <laughs> well, the only response I would have to say that is you got 10 more chances on Thursday. And, exactly. And that's, and I'm not saying that to be snarky. I'm saying that that for once again, what I was talking about, and that is you can get smacked around. Well, believe me, I know I do. But then when it comes together and, and you, can, uh, you, you get it right, it supersedes all the smacking around and, and you end up making money. There are some places, if you get a little bit behind, you had no chance in hell of climbing out. But that's not the case at Oakland. Um, we still have 12 racing days and those – if those are winning days for you, they're going to crush out the, uh, the first 40 days that you didn't do any good. Exactly. Uh, now, I do have a question for you, uh, Kate, and I don't know if Caitlin knew this, uh, but how was the last day at Hollywood Park for you, seeing how you, you were there as, as long as you were? Oh, I would say that there was a number of emotions that were in play. Um we knew six months before the last day at Hollywood park that that was going to be the last day. So we, uh, we got, uh, I think we got somewhat mentally and emotionally prepared for it. Um, the, the literally the last day was, was extremely difficult to do a good job because there was media all over the place there were people that I hadn't seen in five years that wanted to come up to the announcer's booth and say hello and, and, uh, and, and wish me well and say so long. Um, it was extremely important to me. We had two very big stakes races that day. And it was extremely important to me that I was on top of my race calling game on closing day. And so it was a logistically extremely difficult day. And then as we were heading towards the last race, um, I had six months to think about what I was going to do in, in the race call of that last race. And about 20 minutes before the race, I still hadn't completely decided what to do um, and how to play it. And so that was nerve wracking as well. Um, but when, when you get me to talk about it and I look at it now, in the past tense, it just was awful. 
Uh, I guess that's the best adjective. It was awful because you knew all I ever wanted to do was be the announcer at Hollywood Park. That's it. I didn't want to play. I didn't want to date Bo Derek. I didn't want to play center fielder for the Dodgers. I just want to be the announcer at Hollywood Park. And I accomplished that. And then how the hell does a racetrack like that go out of business after 75 years? And so we just couldn't, we just couldn't believe it was happening. And it was, uh, it was an overriding feeling of, of just sadness and despair. I, I, I grew up at Hollywood Park. You know, I was, I was a kid going there. I remember when they built Cary Grant Pavilion. I remember when Marge Everett had the track. I remember R.D. Hubbard taking over the track. I remember the return of Friday Night Racing. And the last day I dropped, I dropped my wife off at the airport and went straight to the track because it was the last time I'd be there. And on the way home, I was just shell-shocked, I guess, because it's like 25, 30 years of your life living at that track, being at that track, and then all of a sudden it's not going to be there is just, it was heart-wrenching for me. So first off, I want to say that your call was incredible, and it was perfect for, for the situation. And um, I'm just glad I got to be there to listen to it. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, it, uh, like I said, it was a, uh, it was a machination of six months of different ideas. I also consulted a lot of people about what they thought would, was best. I talked to a lot of announcers, um, Frank Miramati, Michael Rona, Larry Colmas, Eddie Burgart, uh, and some others about what they thought was appropriate for that call. And then again, like I said, about 20 minutes before the race, I hadn't completely decided what I was going to do. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's been well-received. Only Jay Hubby of the Racing Forum, he, he ripped that call. Uh, he thought it was awful, but uh, most everybody else uh, had, had a good response to it. Here's the only thing you need to know, Vic. That call will always live in infamy, and regardless of what Jay says, you're you're in the history books of horse racing announcers with that call, and that's all. Well, that I matters. appreciate that. I'm not sure that infamy is the right word that I would want, but <laughs> but, but so, uh, I always I always ask. I work with I worked with Chris Griffin over at uh, Stan Houston Race Park, and I always am fascinated by how you guys get your start with with race calling and all that. A, I find it very difficult to be able to do it. And B, uh, just to be able to know when a horse is moving or not is in a certain spot in a race is so special to, to see it happen. How did you get your start in it? Um, what, what drew you to it? When I was in seventh grade, I knew for sure that I was going to spend my life at the racetrack. There was no doubt in my mind. Uh, I had been taken out to the track as a youngster uh, by my grandfather to Hollywood Park and actually out down to Caliente on the weekends, a racetrack that no longer exists, but was in Tijuana, Mexico. And I, I fell in love with horse racing. I knew that I was going to be involved in horse racing 
in some capacity. In the summer times, we I grew up in, in San Diego. In the summer times, we'd go out to Del Mar. And uh, I would be into what all my friends were, which was looking at the girls and trying to cash a ticket. But I was also into the announcer, which was the iconic Harry Henson, one of the great announcers to ever live and one of the great people to ever live. And I found myself much more in tune into listening to Harry than my buddies. And at that time, Dave Johnson was calling the races at Santa Anita. And the, uh, the juxtapose between him and Harry was so dramatic. And, it, and, and I enjoyed them both for, for differing reasons. And I just, I, I decided that I would try to become a race caller. I knew I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to work the racetrack. And then I thought race calling would be really fun. And um, I, I knew when I was a teenager that that's what I wanted to do. And I've been very, very fortunate given some opportunities. And uh, here I am 36 years later from my first race call, um, still trying to get them around there. It's fascinating. Caitlin, what, what have you got for him? I've got more well, questions for him, but the more, the more about <laughs> other things. Pivoting back to Hollywood Park a little bit, um, I kind of wanted to ask, what are some of like some of the best horses that you ever saw race at Hollywood Park that you had the pleasure of calling? And what were some of your favorite memories from being there? I kind of came into horse racing when Hollywood Park was in the twilight of its life so i don't really have a lot of memories from there well the best horse i ever saw run at hollywood park i didn't call which was spectacular bid um he remains the best horse that i've ever actually seen run um and uh, he was he was good in the late 70s i was there as a fan but i was i certainly wasn't calling races there my first year there was 2001 um Memories of Hollywood Park, they certainly um, go back to, I was there the, the day that J.O. Tobin beat Seattle Slough, and um, there were 65,000 people there, and, uh, and Harry was calling the races. As far as myself, memories of Hollywood Park are always going to begin and end with, with Zenyatta. Um, I was... I was privileged and honored to be able to call eight of her wins, including the first two wins of her career. And um, in the second race of her career, I, I, I took a shot. I, as it turns out, it wasn't much of a shot, but I took a shot and called her a future superstar. She looked like Jackie Joyner Kersey running against a bunch of 14-year-old girls that day. And it, you could just tell that she was going to be very, very special. Um, other great memories that are all about the horses, uh, Lava Man winning three Hollywood Gold Cups, Officer breaking his maiden, Ghost Zapper breaking his maiden, Cesario when she won the American Oaks, um, Painter when he came back and won after almost dying and then came back 16 months later and, and, and won an allowance race at Hollywood Park. Um, it, the memories are all about the horses. Um, they're all about the uh, people say, oh, wow, you made great race calls. Give me a break. <laughs> I, didn't make, I didn't make great race calls. I described, I tried to describe somewhat accurately great races and great horses. And there's like, like a good example would be Chris Griffin. 
Chris is a is a is a terrific young announcer, and he's going to get his opportunities now to call some some more elite type horses, and he may get to see it and call a champion. But the the only way that you get to make legendary iconic race calls is calling legendary iconic races. Doesn't have anything to do with me. It has to do with Lava Man winning three gold cups in a row or, or Zenyatta and all of that. So it's just a matter of being fortunate too. And, uh, and, and, I, and I feel very blessed by that opportunity, very much so. I love that. That, I don't know. I just, stuff like that is just so touching. And Seattle Slew is my all-time favorite horse. And just to even hear anybody talk about him or being able to see him run in person, oh, it just, it just gives me chills. Yeah, I felt bad for him that day. That was a ridiculous entry. They should have never run him in that spot. And um, he was completely over the top. And that was a very speed-favoring racetrack that day. And J.O. Tobin got a bunch of weight. And uh, um, Seattle Slough was really up against it. It wasn't fair to him to, uh, to get him beat like that. Was uh, that not long after he had been sick? Well, not only that, but he had just had, he was at the end of a very long campaign. I mean... You know, um, it just was a, it was a, it was a big ask of him that day, especially as good as J.O. Tobin was and, and how good he was at Hollywood Park. And he looked like controlling speed and it turned out he was, and he was getting weight and all of that. And um, I felt sorry for Seattle Slew. He deserved, he deserved better than that. He, um, was that when Doug was training him? Is that if I recall? Doug Peterson? Was he, was I don't think that, I, I think he was still a, um, a Billy Taylor horse at that point. Okay. Not positive, but I, I don't I've, think. I'm trying to remember and I can't. So I just, so many, there's one, there's one horse that he failed to mention that he called and that was Beholder's maiden, her first start of her career where she finished fifth. I called Beholder's race first race. Uh huh. I didn't even know yeah. that. Executive privilege won the race huh. that day. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that. When, <laughs> yeah. when you said that, there was one horse that I didn't mention. I thought you were going to say, well, California Chrome or Shared Belief or somebody oh. like that. Um, they both ran on the last day of Hollywood Park. Yeah, yeah California Chrome and Beholder both stuck in my head as some of the last greats to race there and Shared Belief, too. I forgot he even ran there. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I didn't even know I called Beholders. I didn't know I called her. Yeah. First time was, I've ever heard that. Yeah, I, the only reason why I know is because I was telling uh, Harris Arbach this the other day that I had a friend of mine who was galloping Beholder, and she had said that Papa Mandela was, was all for her being the next superstar and the greatest source of all time and all this. And, you know, Rick, you know, Richard Mandela doesn't say things like that just to say it. And lo and behold, he was right. And I remember her first race. I remember her making a move around the turn and then flattening out and being bummed about it. But, you know, it was, it was a great race nonetheless. And I miss Hollywood park. I just really do. Whenever I talk about first-time starters, I, I always remind people that Secretary finished fourth in his first start. So, yeah, uh, it's uh, sometimes they win first out, 
Um, I was playing a tournament at Del Mar and I called a friend of mine, Dan Ward, who is Jerry Hollendorfer's assistant. And he had some 650 pound Calbred in there. And he said, but, but by the way, we've got a horse that's drawn on the rail. Mike Smith's going to ride her. And I think she has a chance to be pretty good someday, but I don't know. Mike might not let her run because she's kind of green and she's on the inside. And I don't know. And it was Songbird. So, <laughs> so any, you know, that's what happens. That's, that's the cool thing about our game. It really is, right? It's like, eh, I don't know. This horse might be good. This horse might not. You know, one thing I do want to want to bring up, uh, not only do you do like announcing, but you also hustle book. You're a jock agent. I am. And I'm fascinated. I, I was a jock agent for a while at Hollywood Park and Santa Anita and Los Alamitos. And the one thing that I'm always fascinated by is how jock agents know where horses fit without even having to look at, at anything but the book because they just retain information so well. How did, why do you do it? Well, in my case, it's a ink pen. I, I'm, I'm not one of those guys. Uh, they have those guys in California to this day. Tony Matos, Scotty McClellan is like that. Uh, Joe Farrar, he was amazing when he was there, when he had Bejarano. And um, there's other guys like that. I did the work, but I didn't really know it completely off the top of my head. Um, I just had to go in and beat the books and, and, and find the spots where it would be most likely for a horse to go back in. There are some trainers in California that do not want you to suggest a spot or talk about their horses at all. They'll let you know if they need you. There are other trainers that if you don't have an idea of where their horses should go and be the right spot for them, they're probably not going to ride you. John Sadler's like that. When I had Rosario in Southern California, um, I would have to be supremely prepared before I would go see John because he would expect me to tell him where I thought his horses would fit best. Um, I wasn't always right, but if I didn't do that work, he wouldn't take time to talk to me and find somebody else. I did that with Laura Pinelli one time. She had a, she was just transferring over to training thoroughbreds and she had this thoroughbred that really didn't want to sprint. And I walked up to her and I said, you know, there's this mile and a 16th main claimer for 32 that fits this horse that you have. And I've got a rider that wants to ride it. And she goes, Oh, so you're here every morning. You know what I'm, you know what that horse is doing. Um, you're never writing for me. And I'm like, okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> That's, like, that actually is, is the case more often than not. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's just, it, to me, it's just like one of those things where you, A, you have to play a lot of politics and B, you have to know where those horses fit. Um, you've been lucky. You've, I'm not lucky. You've been blessed with the fact that you've had Joel Rosario, uh, Tyler Bays at Alice Park. Uh, Ryan Gazdar is probably one of the one of the best unknown jockeys, and he's gotten better as he's gotten older. And now you have uh, Jermaine Bridgeman. I do. So I, some, I think he's some great riders. Just before I came on this uh, 
podcast, we were doing the draw at Indiana Grand, and um, Jermaine is going to get off to a slow start in Indiana because most of his business comes from horses that are coming from meets that haven't ended yet. Like Oakland, um, the fairgrounds just finished, stuff like that. Um, because he's going to ride for a lot of the Kentucky guys at Indiana. He'll ride everything first call for Tom Amos. The ones that, uh, that uh, we don't ride for Tom, if there's a horse in the same race, we can ride pretty much everything for Steve Asmussen and other guys. Um, and those horses aren't being entered yet. Um, but he is, he, he is a budding superstar in my estimation. He comes with the physical talents. He's one of the smartest guys I've ever met at the racetrack. I don't mean smartest jockeys, I mean smartest anybody that I've ever met at the racetrack. He's extremely well-spoken. Um, he understands what to and what not to say to trainers and he has a chance to be uh, very, very successful because he's never going to go backwards. He's going to, he's going to make impressions on important people and they're going to like him and use him. And then if he goes on and starts to cultivate a relationship with other important people, then they're going to start liking him and using him. And it may take a while and he may need a better agent, actually, frankly, um, just like Rosario did when he got Ron Anderson. I could have never taken Rosario where Ron Anderson has. Um, but for right now, Jermaine and I are clicking and we get along very, very well. And he's going to ride seven days a week over the summer. He's going to ride Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at Indiana Grand and Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Arlington. Wow. Now he's he's uh, uh, I got I, I, I met him for the first time at uh, during Rebel Day. Um, our a mutual friend introduced us and we went to dinner. We all went to dinner together. And I left that dinner so impressed by him because he's he's hilarious. I mean, I've never met a guy that's as funny as he is in, in so many ways. He's smart and he doesn't, he's not, he's not the type of person that if you ask him a racing question when it comes to him on a horse or somebody else, he's not going to look at you and go, man, that's a dumb question. He'll actually answer it and tell you, oh, this horse is doing this, this horse is doing that. And that's something that this, that for me personally, I think racing needs more of are people that are able to tell you what is going on in a race to help you understand it. Oh, I completely agree. And, and that's why Jermaine and he and I have talked about this. He's, he's a cinch to be successful in racing long after he stops riding because he could go to work tomorrow for TVG. He could be a steward. He could certainly be a trainer. Um, he just has, he just has a tremendous skill set. Um, one of the things that we've actually had to work on a little bit is him dummying down a little bit. And of course he hates it. He, he despises it, and so do I. But these trainers out here that can really control your fate uh, can sometimes become little demigods. And if you just, if they feel for a second like you know more than they do, 
they'll just eliminate you from the equation and find somebody else that, uh, that, that makes them feel more comfortable. And so we've had to work on, on that a little bit with, you know, being a jocks agent or even being a jock, it's just about sales. It's what it is. It's a sales job. And so when you approach different clients, you have to become a chameleon and be whatever it is that you think will close the deal. So in some cases, you can answer a question for a trainer and give it to them exactly the way it really is. And they're impressed by that and appreciate it. And then a lot of other trainers, when they say that they want to know what's happening, they don't really. They just want they want an affirmation of what they think. Um, it's like the old line, how do I look in this dress? You don't really want to know. You, you're not asking, how do I look in this dress? You're asking me to tell you that you look great in the dress. And so we've had to do that with trainers, especially Jermaine, especially Jermaine, because he's, he's just smarter than they are, most of them. Not all of them, but yeah, most he, of them. He really is. He's, and, and he loves a horse, too. I mean, that's the big part of it is that oh, I agree he with takes that. the time. He, he takes the time to go to the backside on his, when he's done riding and walk around and be around those horses that he's riding just to get to know oh, them I, better. I agree with that. And, and I, think it, I think that's why it's not a coincidence that he rides for guys like Tom Amos and Steve Asmussen and some of the guys he rides for. Um, because those guys are geniuses. And yeah. so they know, you know, their bread is buttered. They have, they have done their accomplishments. So now they want somebody that can actually uh, contribute to the equation. And they know that in Jermaine, they can get that. So you don't have to answer this and you don't have to mention names. But I, I got to know because I have some stories how have you ever had a trainer run you out of a barn for spinning them on a horse? And by spinning, yeah. you said, yes, I want to be on the right. Uh, you want to be on the horse. And then you get a better offer. You mean where I actually got chased out of the barn? Oh yeah. Chased out of the barn. Yeah. Karen Headley did that. <laughs> um, it wasn't my fault. I said, you did, I said you didn't have to mention her name. Uh. <laughs> the more time I mention her name, the more I'm likely to throw up. But um, <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> it is. It wasn't. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't Bruce's fault. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't Martin Garcia's fault. It was Bob Baffert's fault. Um, there was a stake at Santa Anita, and Baffert had a couple of horses that were nominated, and I knew it was going to be a very, very full field. So I knew that. If Baffert didn't run, I could find something for Martine. So when the nominations came out, I asked if Baffert if he was running. He said no. When it was the day before entries, I asked Baffert if he was running. He said no. At that point, I picked up a call for Bruce Headley to ride a horse for him. On the morning of entries, I asked Baffert if he was thinking about running. He said no. And at 11 o'clock that morning, I asked him if he was running. He said, no, at noon, Baffert's horse came out of the uh, box. And, and I, had to, uh, I had to 
Martin Garcia was writing everything for Bob Baffert at that time. Um, he was writing, he won the Preakness for him on Looking at Lucky. Um, and I had no control over that. And if, if I hadn't ridden Bob's horse with Martin, Martin would have got fired out of the barn and I would have got fired from being his agent. So I didn't really have any control over it. I went and I tried to explain it to Bruce. He was actually pretty cool with it, but then Karen interjected herself into it and started hurling vituperations at me. And um, they were justified because they were pissed and they were going to end up with some ham and egg rider. Um, so that's that's what happened. I ended up getting fined five hundred bucks for that. Um, Are you serious? Yeah, no, I deserved a fine. I didn't think I deserved five hundred, but I deserved a fine. If you're not spinning, if you're not, if you're an agent and you're not spinning somebody occasionally, then you don't have any business. Yeah, I, I so, agree with that. I agree with that. So, I, had, I had that situation happen to me at Los Al. Um, and Caitlin, you'll laugh at this one. Um, I don't know how well you knew the Arabian circuit back in the early 90s, Vic, but Les Roberts was the trainer that came from Walla Walla, Washington. <laughs> and he used, to do the, he used to do the fair circuits up there, but he had this really nice Arabian called Flaming Tiki. Tiki. And Lori Goulis wrote them. And we also wrote second call for Lynette Ashby because she had all of the Magnus Racing Venture horses. And so I went to Lynette and I said, I'm riding Flaming Tiki. And she said, no, you're not. You're riding my horse or you're not going to get any more business. So I said, okay, fine. And I forgot to tell Les. So it was totally my fault. And the next morning I went over to Les to try to smooth things over because we had a good relationship. And he said, if I walked through his shed row, a pitchfork would be hurled at me. And two seconds later, I saw the pitchfork come flying at me. Well, you so, should have called the investigators and had them arrested. Uh, to me, it was just less being less. So it didn't matter to me. I knew it wasn't going to hit me. I just thought, you know, it, it was, it is what it is. And, you know, he, he yeah. ended up riding me next the following race anyway. Well, that's so. a very that's a very poignant part of that. When you get when you're an agent and you get life that you'll never ride a horse again for me as long as you ever live, that's three yeah. weeks. Yeah, that's three yeah. weeks if they have a rider. Yeah. You know. I'll live for some Arabians at Losau. What? <laughs> I said I'll live for some Arabians at Losau. It was a hundred thousand dollar race that I yeah them amounts of amount yeah amounts amount yeah um, it it didn't matter it didn't matter to him because he was a small time trainer uh what made you decide to go to Oakland Park of all places when before it got big <laughs> what before it got big oh let me rephrase that hold on <laughs> that's a good idea that. let me rephrase that before, you know Oakland big. Oakland's always been like a destination racetrack, but it seems like as of late, it seems to have had more eyes on it. So, well, let's man, put I it just stuck way. my foot in my mouth. Uh, oh, dear Lord. American Pharaoh ran at Oakland two years before I got there. So I think it was already big. Um, 
Azari won the, the Apple Blossom twice, and Yana won it twice. Rachel Alexandra won it okay, once. Okay, let me rephrase that. I completely forgot that Frank Miramati was there before you. And, and Pete Aiello. Yeah, I totally just botched that whole thing. No, I, I thought you had been there longer. I thought I honestly thought you had been there way longer. A lot of people feel that way. To you. <laughs> no, I like it. I like hearing you call races. Yeah, this is my you fifth know? year. I'm in the middle of my fifth year. So I know that you posted it on, on Twitter and all that. I guess you bought real estate there and you're setting up shop there now for for the long haul. Is that is that pretty much it? Yeah. Um my wife and I, uh, my wife always wanted to build a house from, from the ground up. And we lived in San Francisco, which meant that was never going to happen. We lived in Marin County. So that meant it never was going to happen. And when each time I would come to Oakland, she'd come and spend more time and like it. And I began to like it. And... So after the season last year, we started looking around. I've always wanted to live on a golf course. And we started looking around and we found some houses that were nice, but they just weren't exactly what we wanted. And one day we were looking around at this place called Diamond Head, which is about 20 miles from uh, Oakland. And we saw a patch of ground on the 13th hole that we asked, is that ground available? Is that lot available? And they said, yeah, and we bought that. And now we're in the midst of building a house on that lot. Um, and um, she's just having the time of her life. And <laughs> the, the house we're building, if we tried to build that in Marin County, it would be a $2 million house. And it's just no chance. Um, so, yeah, we're going to make a commitment to, uh, to being in Arkansas. I mean, I'm a Southern California guy, so I'm... I'm still going to spend a lot of time at the beach there and go down to Mexico and go to Rosarita and Ensenada and all of that and go boogie boarding, which is what my passion is. But uh, we're also going to make a commitment to be here uh, full time. Yeah, really looking forward to it. We should be able to move in. Keeps getting pushed back because we learned that contractors are just full of crap. They just overpromise and under deliver. Um, but now, Looks like we'll probably be able to move in around the 1st of June. Yeah, not, I just no, said, you didn't hear this in the background, but my wife just started cracking up when I said that. <laughs> she's like, yeah, right. If you ever want to hear um, my wife on a race call, she's uh, she's in the Arkansas Derby, and she doesn't even know that. Uh, she's really? standing right here by the door. Yes. On the gallop out, you can hear her clapping. Oh. Uh, because and I know why she was clapping, not because I made a good race call, because she doesn't care about that. She was clapping because I picked Superstock and it was helping me beat Nancy. Oh, that's right. You guys have that thing with Nancy going. Yeah, I forget that. Are but you winning in, on that? It's all, in, it's all in good fun. So I, I've got a couple questions, and then I know Caitlin's going to finish up with her favorite game show uh, type questions. But if People who are going to Arkansas for the first time, say, before the end of the meet or even next year, give them two good places to go visit as far as food places. Food Ooh, places? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, well, it depends on what kind of food you like. Um, but 
everybody knows that Frank Miramati is extremely famous for liking pizza. And in Hot Springs, I think that they all finish a distant second to DeLuca's. Um, that's, that's a really terrific, terrific uh, pizza place. And to be honest with you, this may sound a little self-serving to the house, but we've built a steakhouse at Oakland that I just got a chance to eat at a couple of nights ago called The Bugler. And it crushes out any steakhouse that we have in Hot Springs. And we have some good ones. Uh, the 501, Bones, a couple others. Uh, the Bugler is just, it's just head and shoulders better. And when you're sitting in the Bugler, you look at your, you're sitting at your table, you look out the clubhouse turn of the racetrack. So really a, a, an amazing spot. And um, they bring in fresh fish every day and fresh, fresh. Uh, I don't like fish, but I'm a, I'm a shellfish eater. I like lobster and king crab and stuff like that. And um, I had that and it, man, it was like the deadliest catch. It just dropped some off. It was so good. What so, do you think of the new hotel there that looks like it just opened up? I don't because I haven't gotten a chance to stay there yet. Oh. Um, so, uh, but uh, we are going to stay there and um, I'll have a full report. <laughs> That'll be nice. That'll be like really, really nice. It seems pretty amazing. I mean, I know that they have trackside rooms that you can just look out the uh, look out the window and see the racetrack. I was thinking about changing it from the clubhouse turn to the hotel turn, but I haven't. Maybe I'll do that next year. <laughs> I, I a bunch of us will go there Rebel Weekend, and uh, we sit at the quarter pole. There's a parking lot there that you can sit and watch the horses gallop in. I don't think you're supposed to do it, but we do it. Uh, just oh, I, lots, of do that. lots of people, so, especially yeah. with COVID last year, that ended up being a hot spot. Yeah. You guys did such a great job navigating COVID. Um, how, how different is it? I mean, obviously it's different, but as far as, as far as your viewpoint, how different is it with, with fans there compared to no fans? It's light. It's it's night and day. It's it's awful when there's not fans there. Announcers, when you call at places that have big attendance, we feed off the energy of the live crowd. If you make a call, and you talked earlier on this show about you know picking out a horse that's making a move, leaving the backside, and if that happens to be the three to five favorite, and you start talking about him, you can feel the crowd listening to you and being excited. They're three to five because 70% of the people on the racetrack bet their money on that horse. So um, it's my job is infinitely easier when there's a big crowd. I just, I don't get tired. I draw energy. Uh, I feel a I feel a sense of responsibility for every single race where when it was just when nobody was there, they just sort of seemed to kind of drone together for me. Um, I said the other day on the on the Nancy and Vic show when she asked me about my impressions of of uh, Derby Day, I said we had the best crowd we've ever had, not the biggest. We've had 70,000 for Arkansas Derby. We had 17,000 on Saturday. 
but it was the best. You could tell how, how truly happy they were be able to be out there and just go to what they know brings them joy. And, um, and selfishly, I drew upon their energy all day long. I wasn't tired after 13 races, which is pretty, I'm old now, so it's, it's pretty rare. You're not old. You're not old at all. Well, I feel old sometimes. I did a baseball so, uh, game last night, and my knees feel old. So last question before Caitlin gets, gets her last shot at you. You're, you're doing baseball. I, I think I heard that you're going to do ref, you're going to ref basketball. And I jokingly said that if, if you ever had to come down here to Houston and, and ref a game for me, you'd probably run me in five minutes uh, because I chirp at all the refs. How patient are you with the, with the coaches? Well, it depends on what the chirping is like. Um, and it depends on if you know what you're talking about. Um, I've got a very, uh, a very long fuse. Um, if, if you want to talk to me about something and you ask me a respectful question, I'll give you a respectful answer. Um, <clears throat> if you want to blame on me the fact that your team's getting blown out or that <clears throat> you're one for 22, then I'm not going to have much tolerance of it. Um, you better know the rules. Most of the people in, in the two sports that I officiate, which is basketball and baseball, and basketball by far I prefer, most of the people that end up getting thrown out by me do it because they don't know the rules. They actually are arguing something and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, and even with that, I, I, usually, I usually say, it's time for you to decide if you want to get thrown out or not. I've listened to what you had to say. I've responded. I've told you what, what look I had at it. I think I got a pretty good look at it. I was in the right angle. I was in the right space. I'm a paid professional. I know what I'm, what, what I'm looking at. If, if you disagree, hey, that's, that's in the spirit of the game, and that's okay. I've heard what you have to say, and that's it. And if you, if you choose to say more, it's your choice. But trust me, if you do say more, you're gone. And then if at that point they want to say more, they've made the decision for me. Uh, at least you warred. Um, sometimes I think there was one time where my team was really, really frustrating me and I felt the referees were not giving us a call and I called a timeout and I said, well, at least I know your whistle works and I got a technical for it. That's so, a pretty, that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty what? sarcastic. <laughs> it, it's 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 pretty snarky. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I will tell you that, that. The, the the one thing that it, in my estimation is an absolute unquestioned no no is call it both ways. If you say that to me, you will get explained what that means, and then if you say it again you will be gone because when you say call it both ways, it is implying that you are favoring one side over another and therefore oh. being corrupt. Yeah. And, I don't, I don't buy that one. That one I don't say I will. Yeah. I will jokingly say that if, that if I keep continuously see something in the three point key, I may say, you know, so-and-so has been in the key for the last five seconds. She's already built the tent. There's a campfire. 
maybe make the call, maybe not, but you know, maybe just watch it and let me know what's going on. Nine out of ten times the ref laughs. One out of ten times I get told not to say anything anymore. But, you know, I try to keep it light. I mean, it's only basketball. See, right there is is bad refereeing. If they tell you don't say anything, that's nonsense. You should be able to say whatever you want. Um, it it is not for me. It's it it's my job as a referee to interpret the rule book. It's not to control who you are and what you do. I will never, as officials, say something like, "I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear anything more from you from this point." What if the next point that you have to make is completely salient and may get me to look at something in a different light and maybe agree with you? If you're afraid to be able to ask me a respectful question because I've done some sort of domineering over you, that is not being an official. That's being an ass. Um, so any, any official that ever says that to you, they're not a real official. Right. I agree I with that. Me. I agree with that. All right, Caitlin. Finish it up. All right. Well, we kind of do this with every guest, and I'm anxious to hear your answers. We've kind of gathered a, cons- a consensus of what some of the other ones say. So, if you could pick any trainer, if you owned a horse, money was no object, who would you pick? Depends on what kind of horse it is. Um, That's true. And location also is dependent, too. Yeah. So ask me the question again. I guess I'll start off with this. Um, if you could own any racehorse with any type of ability, you, um, just I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. No, I don't um, want you to change your question. I don't want you to change the question. I just this want is you the to one ask. I usually start with. Yeah, um, ask, ask the same question again. Just identical to the way you did the first time. Just ask the same question again. If you could use any trainer, who would you use? Steve Asmussen. What about Jockey? Um, Flavian Pratt. If you could win a race at any track, where would it be? Del Mar. Okay. Those those are solid answers. Vic. Yeah, for sure. Normally, normally people hedge. They're like, "Well, what part of the race? Where are we running? What track?" And it's like, "No, no, no! Just answer it. Just say yes or no to it. It's no not that big of a deal." But, Nobody's gonna. Nobody's gonna get upset. Everybody has their favorites. Remember that um, that TV show that that guy um, that they called Inside the Actors Studio. Yes, I love that guy. I love that guy, and I always wanted to go through his questionnaire at the end of his show because the first question he asks, nobody has ever given the right answer and the first question that guy james lipton would always ask is if you are standing at the pearly gates and you are standing there and god asks you what's one thing 
that you want granted from him before you come in, what would be your question? And all the decades I watched that show, nobody ever said the right answer, which is, can I go back? Wow, that's That's true. The right answer. And nobody ever said it. So at least I've got that out now. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. And if you ever want to come back, which we would love to have you back, uh, we've had Jermaine on. Oh, cool. You mean I'm playing second fiddle to Bridge Mahan? You know what? I have to feel comfortable asking you to come on. And the week we had him on, it was Derby week, and I didn't want to bother you during Derby week. So What did he say about me? He said you were great. There you go. That guy. See, I told you he's smart. No, I mean he he spoke highly of you when we were when we were at dinner and and everything. So I mean I love the guy. I think the guy's great. Yeah, I do he's too. a hit. I, he's I, hilarious. I, I don't have to be a jocks agent, and sometimes I wish I wouldn't be, but he keeps me going because I, I just I believe in him as a person. Yeah, so. he's he's. I sent him a text message yesterday because I think he ran third on a 30 to one shot or something like that. Yep. In one of the races. Yes. And I said, man, that was, that was just, that was just pure riding right there, man. That was perfect. And he goes, Oh, stop it. (laughs) I just was like, that's Jermaine. Jermaine. We really appreciated you coming on and taking the time to come in and, and talk and and discuss racing with us. I've wanted you on since we first started this, and I and I knew I picked the worst time to ask you the first time. And I've known you, I've known of you, and known you since the Hollywood Park days. We've probably run into each other, and not even known it. But you're you're a class act, and and better yet, a good person. And that's just me saying that. Um, and I appreciate the fact you were able to come on. Well, I sure appreciate you having me on, and I'd be happy to come on again. The uh, great Queenie just jumped up onto my lap. She's named after Zenyatta. So uh, what are you doing there, QQ? She's a good girl. So that was the... Exactly the happiest person in the world, but she's a 12-year-old female chihuahua. So what do you expect? <laughs> Isn't that right, QQ? Yeah, we have nothing but cats in our house, and I think Caitlin does too, so... Yes, it's kind of cute. Um, Keep up the great work and uh, and and call anytime. It's my pleasure. Yes, appreciate it, and thanks for everything. And uh, you've been listening to the Goat Zoom Room with Caitlin and Andy. We actually are doing another podcast tomorrow with Lane Lezzy and C.J. Johnson, which should be a hoot. And uh, subscribe, rate, and review, and we'll talk to you guys soon. One last story. It was CJ's horror. I won a tournament at Del Mar one year. And um, and the horse that put me over the top to win the win the first money, which I think was like 100K, something like that. I don't know what it was. Um, was CJ's horse, Colonel Sampson. Won the last oh. race. Today. Yeah. So I'll bring that up to him tomorrow. So I always have a... Uh, oh, he knows about it. Um, I... Uh, I always have a very soft spot in my heart for CJ because of Colonel Sampson won me the Del Mar tournament. CJ's I have a, good a soft, I have a soft spot for CJ because he keeps me laughing. Yeah. You know, 
He cracks yeah. me up. He's really a good guy. And it's a shame that it's a shame that they don't run Kentucky Downs anymore because I think they did it right. Not to say that the people that do it now don't, but I just love that jockey pick seven that they had. That was so much fun. I wish yeah, they would do I that again. That. So but yes, thank you for coming on. That's a great story. I, I never knew that that it was Colonel Sampson that won you that race. That was awesome. Yeah, he could not win the race at the 16th or well, about the eighth pole. And he came up flying and I knew in the last two or three jumps he was going to get there. And I knew if he got there, I was going to win the tournament. And uh, that's a great feeling. Yeah, next time next time you're on, we're going to discuss handicapping tournaments. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll have fun and we'll discuss those. We've had people on to do that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I'll tell you the story about how two years in a row I was going to win the BCBC with my horse in front at the top of the stretch in the, in the Breeders' Cup Classic. When, if California Quorum beats Arrogate, I win it. And if uh, Connected beats uh, Gunrunner, I win it. So oh, those, man. Those are two stories for you. Oh, we got we to gotta dive deeper into those. those, those are Ran into fun. two monsters. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. And to be honest with you, I literally thought California Chrome had that race. I, I did too. Arrogate had it in him. I did too. <laughs> Arrogate so. was a serious horse because he ran down a horse that was running away from the rest of them. Yeah. So exactly. So what's the big deal? It was only a half a million dollars. Oh, that year yeah. I actually no, it was a million five because that year I was alive for the. Uh, because of winning that tournament with Colonel Sampson, I was alive for a million-dollar bonus if I won the BCPC. Oh, geez. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. All right. Thanks a lot, Vic. We appreciate it. All right, guys. Call anytime. Thanks. Bye-bye.